Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast. The show, the curious ones, the ones that want to learn to fly high from individuals creating value in a variety of industries and bodies to learn about their sunrise, their magic moments, their hustle, and a load of golden nuggets and insight to help you be 1% better every day. And I'm your host, Vita Tagarai. It's episode 26. We talk so much about journeys on this show. What a special journey this show continues to be. Thank you for all the love. Now onto the episode, we take flight with Mike Boyd. This is probably the most wide-ranging educational conversation I've had on the show. We talk about everything from Mike being shy growing up in Brisbane, Australia, to having this entrepreneurial itch that eventually led to him joining and scaling various businesses, some incredibly insightful failures, but then light at the end of the tunnel, the differences between Australia and Asia, particularly the relevance of study and how success is viewed differently in the two, two cultures. Here at Mike's podcast, The Business of Family, where he interviews families that have succeeded in building generational businesses and wealth and how they continue to do so, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Mike. It's always nice to have a fellow podcaster. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, my pleasure. Um, now, there might be some listeners who might not be as familiar with who you are and your journey. Did you want to give a quick overview of, of where you are in life today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, a, um, I'm an Aussie based in Singapore. Uh, I'd describe myself as an entrepreneur, a CEO, and an investor. Uh, I wear multiple hats in, in what I do, but I'm involved in and around the world of business and always have been. Awesome. And you also host your own popular podcast, which we'll get to a bit later on in the segment. Absolutely. Um, happy to share all of that if you wish. Yeah, no, it is amazing. I, I'm definitely one of your listeners. So it's a good good show and I'll recommend it to my listeners for sure. Um, Mike, let's start with your, with your sunrise. Um, I've, I've always loved asking people about their, their early childhood and, and kind of what formed them into who they are today. So what, what, was, what was your childhood like if you reflect on it? What were some of your passions and what was the influence of family? Yeah, well, um, I grew up in Brisbane, Australia. Um, had a wonderful, you know, pretty ordinary middle-class upbringing uh, with an excellent family. And um, from a very early age, I became interested in, in business. I like to say that I started my first business at the age of 11 selling lost golf balls, which I retrieved from the, uh, the <laughs> creek at the local golf club and I'd polish them up. Um, display them in empty egg cartons and sell them for 50 cents or a dollar a piece back to the golfers, which was, which was good fun. So I always had that entrepreneurial spirit and, and went on to start a couple of, you know, little hobby businesses throughout um, high school and then got more serious throughout university. Um, but, you know, one early childhood memory that I'll never forget was that I was always an incredibly shy child. Uh, when I was around 11 or 12, I transitioned to high school and uh, I'd come out of a very small uh, primary school uh, where I knew everyone and we'd been in the same class together for um, our entire primary school life. And when I went to high school, it was a much bigger school. Um, I was overwhelmed by it. I only knew one other person, I think, that, that was attending the school that year. And the shyness just completely overtook me. And, you know, I have this vivid memory of lining up at the tuck shop at the canteen uh, one lunchtime to order a drink. 
and uh, getting to the the second most in line, you know, it was almost my turn at, at the counter. And as soon as it was my turn, the person in front of me was finished. I was so shy that I quickly <laughs> bailed out of the line and ran away because I, I couldn't get the words out to say, please, can I have a can of Coke? You know, to this stranger, this lovely lady that was probably one of the mums behind the counter that was serving. And, you know, so it was just absolutely crippling. Um, but I went on a journey through my high school years from um, grade eight to grade 12, with the age of 12 to roughly 17, where I was this very shy, um, uh, introverted kid to begin with, and graduated five years later as the school captain, excited to speak in front of 2000 people. And so I, it, it was an absolutely formative time in my life where I went through a lot of personal development and uh, completely transformed the trajectory of my life. Mm, how amazing. I, I love hearing that because that sounds exactly like my story. So <laughs> I remember I was in grade eight and nine and I had to work in a, in a restaurant as part of my kind of work experience in Australia. Um, and I was going to you, I couldn't go up and speak to the manager and say, can I get an internship? But that changed my life. After that, I was happy to speak to anyone and have a conversation. So glad you shared that. And and how was, you, you talked about the entrepreneurial spirit early on. Do you think that came from your parents or the surrounding you were in? Like what, what influenced that? What led you to sort of try yourself in that space? Yeah, look, it's a great question. The entrepreneurial itch uh, or the tendency, I honestly don't really know where it came from. It's just how I was wired and I see the world through the lens of, problems that need solving. And usually when you can solve a problem and add some value, there's a business to be built around it. And um, I didn't come from a, a long history of entrepreneurial uh, family members. Uh, you know, my dad was in the public service for his whole career and mum was a teacher. Um, but, you know, whether it was just watching movies or, or outside influences, I got a taste for it early. But if I had to pick one thing, I think it was probably part of that personal development journey I went on during high school that really stoked that interest and curiosity to pursue that entrepreneurial path because I had to blaze my own trail. You know, I very much had to reinvent myself and, and build my own confidence and learn how to speak to people, learn how to sell myself, even as a teenager. And as soon as I understood those things and saw very quick feedback that it worked, then all of a sudden I felt like I was capable of, of doing anything. And of course, a lot of the personal development books and resources that I found myself consuming at that age were from business people or entrepreneurs or coaches or the likes that were operating in this space and sharing some of their wisdom. So naturally, I was drawn to them as um, pseudo mentors and followed in their footsteps. Naturally, you know, it, it was a, a process of experimentation and, and, um, trial and error. You know, a lot of the businesses or what I would call businesses in the very early days were dramatic failures, but it was building that street smarts education before I had the book smarts to go with it. Um, that really taught me some formative lessons in being an entrepreneur. And, and did you, would you say you had any heroes or influences you looked up to, whether it be, I don't know, posters in your wall or, or just just metaphorically that he said, oh, that person's really cool. I wish I, I can emulate their behavior or have their sort of philosophy in life. Yeah, great question. Um, I would have to go back again to the authors of some of these books. The standout for me was Dale Carnegie, who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. 
um, you know, as this shy kid that was coming out of his shell and learning how to interact with human beings, um, that book was incredibly powerful for me. And uh, it was actually a book that I read every year for 10 years in a row after I discovered it. And so I'd say Dale Carnegie's right up there. Um, and, you know, a number of the other sort of prominent entrepreneurs that you would see on the what was back then front cover of magazines and things like that, whether it was uh, Richard Branson or others, to me, it was just incredible that these people were um, coloring outside the square. They were actually doing what they wanted to do. And if something didn't make sense to, to them in the world, they didn't have to follow the conventional path. They could mm. create their own. And to me, that just made so much sense. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't say there was one or two key mentors, but they were so many inspirations and I would model the behavior from probably 50 different influences throughout that time. Yeah, no, I love that. And and tell me about your, like, if you look at just from an academic point, do, as I noticed you studied a Bachelor of Applied Science and Business Management. Was that a deliberate plan from high school or did you sort of fall into that? How did that happen? <laughs> there was nothing deliberate about that. That was a, okay. a really interesting time in my life. So I did go straight from uh, high school to university and I'd come off the back of the biggest year in my life to date, which was this you know, final year of high school, school captain, the best academic results I'd ever achieved simply because, you know, it all came together for me and, and I was in the limelight. So I had to achieve uh, there was a lot of <laughs> expectations around me and, and I thrived, but I was absolutely exhausted. And um, so I, I turn up to uni and I think, you know, I've got to keep this achieving streak going. So I actually started in a combination of law and commerce uh, and, um, and over the process of the next two and a half years, changed degrees, I think, six times because I was wow. so lost and couldn't find something that I actually enjoyed. And I ended up doing a couple of years of economics, um, business management. The applied science came later, actually. It was a degree specifically focused on um, carbon sequestration and sustainability, which was all the rage at the time. Uh, Australia was about to bring in a, a carbon trading scheme, which never actually eventuated, but... Um, but it was all all the rage at the time. And I was interested in it from the economics and the business perspective. You know, it's, it was almost like a share market, but for trading carbon. And I thought this is going to be a great opportunity if I'm one of the first people in the country to be educated in this topic and, you know, have a business mind, I'm going to build a great business around this. And, um, and it was never meant to be, but I spent five years at uni, got my um, two degrees and uh, struggled the whole time. I, I really... Um, was trying to find myself as a young adult. I was really trying to figure out who I was. And mm. um, I battled with my parents quite a bit at the time because they were <laughs> educators. They, were, they had traditional careers. They had worked extremely hard uh, to provide me with education opportunities in life. And, uh, and then I got there and, and basically hated it. I really struggled. And um, it's not that I couldn't do the work. It was just that I was disinterested and I was more interested mm. in building businesses or talking to people who had done it. And almost every influence or mentor that I was looking at were all, you know, college dropouts, as they say. And it's even sort of celebrated today that all these entrepreneurs are college dropouts. Um, but it was incredibly important to my parents that I, that I got an education. So I managed to get through it. Um, I spent you know, the least amount of time on campus as possible and the <laughs> least amount of time in class as possible and ultimately turned it into a bit of a game where I would see um, how well I could succeed with the least amount of effort and I sort of turned it into a, 
you know, competition with myself, which is how I got through. Um, and ultimately built another business while I was there. I, I ran a party hire company, um, which was specifically focused on 18th and 21st birthday parties. Uh, and we were renting beer kegs and daiquiri machines uh, to that cohort. So it was fantastic uh, business with the right sort of uh, environment around me. And I'd sit up the back of the lecture hall, you know, taking bookings for this weekend's parties and, and you know, processing invoices and sending emails and things and uh, doing the least amount of classwork possible. But um, got through, got my degrees, glad I did. And now I like to say that I've got that, you know, healthy combination of street smarts and book smarts. Um, mm. And, and ultimately, I've come full circle. You know, give that another 10, 15 years, I've now progressed to a point where I know who I am. I, I've achieved a level of success in, in my given um, career. And now I'm extremely passionate about education. And I've actually gone back and participated at, um, in all sorts of executive programs at London mm. Business School and Harvard Business School and others because it, to me, it makes such a difference to know what you want to do and then actually pursue the education to get there. Whereas when I was 18, I just was so lost that it didn't make sense to me and I was I found myself being bored. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting topic that you touch on there, Mike, because I think we talk about it in the show quite a bit because a number of listeners are quite young in their life. Um, and I, I can definitely relate to you because I think the schooling system told me that I wasn't good enough to handle life because I wasn't that theoretical book smart person. But if you put me in front of a room or made me sell something, I was a lot better at it. Um, do you think looking back now for listeners that are in that phase where perhaps they're lost or or the school system's telling them that, oh, they're not good enough in year 12 or first year uni, do you have any any advice from them from your journey that you go, it, it actually ends up working out if you back yourself and if you put in the work? Yeah, look, I've got some, some thoughts on this that may be a different, uh, from the norm or what you hear most often. Um, if it was my 18-year-old self right now, I'd be saying, I hate uni, I don't want to be there, I'm bored, let me quit, I want to go and build businesses, you know, I'm, I'm going to be fine in life. Was sort of, I, I was a little overconfident and thought I had it all figured out. Um, in reality, I didn't. And while I gave my parents a lot of grief about being there, um, I am grateful today that they made me stay or strongly encouraged me to stay, and, and that's what I did. Um, the reason why is because it's not actually about the content. At that age, it was teaching me discipline. It was teaching mm. me to stick with a commitment that I'd made to myself and others, uh, both a financial commitment and a time commitment, um, to achieve something even though it was difficult, and to learn, again, more life skills. And this is what you don't really appreciate when you're thrown into a, an environment where you're uncomfortable, you actually learn the most when you're uncomfortable. And obviously I had to learn how to do group work. I had to learn how to um, pass exams after cramming the night before. I had to uh, pass assignments after cramming the night before. And even though I thought that was a great big joke, it actually taught me skills, uh, life skills about deadlines, time management, working with others, discipline and commitment. And so I would say if, if you don't have it all figured out and you're still finding your way in life, uh, which really, you know, I think I spent you know, until I was about 30, did I really feel like I knew exactly who I was and what I was doing? Um, if you haven't reached that point yet, then I would say stick with your commitments, see it through, because it might not be the outcome that's, that's the label on the degree or whatever it might be, 
but it's everything else that you're learning by going through the process, which is extremely powerful. And, um, you know, when I, when I was, um, I can't remember how old, but it was back in 2015, I moved to Asia and uh, I became a resident of Hong Kong. And it was the first time that outside of Australia, I had actually had to use my university degrees to get something that I wanted. And so even right. though I discounted the fact that um, I didn't learn as much at uni that, that I would have liked compared to my street smarts education in business, I wanted a visa to live in Hong Kong. And they wouldn't give me one unless I was a white collar educated, you know, X, Y, and Z with a, mm. with a degree or more at, at a credible university. And it was really interesting. It sort of showed me that the value of getting something done and sticking with a commitment wasn't necessarily the specifics, but, you know, is powerful and, and other people do care about it uh, as well. And I live in Singapore today and I had exactly the same experience when I first sought a visa in Singapore. Um, my education credentials were important in that process. Mm, well, there you go. Listeners that are tuning in, if you want to go to Asia, you need your degree. So. Um, and, and I think I was going to actually touch on that and why you mentioned the Asia part. And I've got two, two questions to it. I think one is, if you go back to your sunrise, the fact that you're in Asia now and you said you've been in Asia for what, over five years, from what I understand. Do you think that goes back to your childhood where you have that influence of going, okay, I want to stretch myself and live in a in a different culture. And then part two is, I know when we were chatting the other day, you said your kids are growing up in, in Singapore, right? And I know Asia's got a very big focus on academics and getting your grades and getting those kind of accolades in a very academic style. How, how do you manage that now, given that you're an entrepreneur and you run all these businesses, but your kids are growing up in a, in a society in Asia that values that book smart culture to an extent? Yeah, great question. Great question. So to your first point about moving to Asia um, uh, and, and traveling in general, when I was growing up, um, like I said, I had a, a wonderful family, wonderful upbringing. Uh, we traveled domestically within Australia, but I had never been overseas. We, we never traveled overseas as a family. And so um, I, I craved it and was so excited about the prospect of traveling. And, you know, as soon as I got finished with high school and started university most of my holiday breaks there I would travel with a friend uh, backpacking and we started in places like uh, Vietnam Cambodia Thailand just exploring the world and um, then later and, and it really wasn't all that many years later um, very quickly I had a need within one of my businesses uh, which I still own today to go and build a team in Asia and uh, we actually moved to the Philippines and lived there for two and a half years originally and built out our back office in the Philippines uh, for our company. But it was only because I had that uh, early experience and confidence that I had already traveled through parts of Asia and I loved exploring and I was open to different cultures and languages and cuisines. Um, and it's, again, it's been one of those incredible life experiences and learning opportunities, uh, mm. which I treasure today. I absolutely love travel. Um, to get to your second point about education within Asia, I mean, you're absolutely on the money there. Um, it's held in, in very high regard. Uh, the expectations on kids is pretty extreme in some circles. Um, the only difference I would say is, you know, here in Singapore, my kids are still quite young, but they go to um, international schools or international uh, um, yep. education institutes. And the one thing I love about that is that they are in a melting pot in terms of culture and experience with their classmates. There are people from all over the world. 
um, local Singaporeans and expats that my kids interact with on a daily basis. And uh, from language to culture to experiences, I mean, when I went through school, it was, you know, it was very Aussie. It was very white Australian type experience. Here, every month or every few weeks, it seems, there's a different uh, cultural celebration that the kids are taking part in. They're learning about the Indian festival of Diwali. They're, they're learning about Chinese New Year, which is upon us now. They celebrate mm-hmm. Easter uh, and, and a thousand other different festivals and, uh, and uh, cultural experiences throughout the year. So I love that for them. And um, I think that the influence from an international perspective is pretty special. It really makes them very worldly, uh, very open. And um, it's not purely focused on academics, as you might expect in an Asian environment. I think it's, it's that old adage of perception versus reality, isn't it? Um, and yeah, I couldn't agree more. We actually had a guest on the show all back, Ben Jesse, and he is Aussie, but he grew up in Hong Kong. And, and I think he did his back end of his schooling back in Melbourne in boarding. And he talked very candidly about how hard that transition was for exactly the reason you mentioned, where in Hong Kong, there was this kind of breeding ground of culture and, and a understanding of each other's culture was when he came to a westernized country everyone was sort of the same and if you stood out you stood out and it wasn't the same so exactly. yeah exactly it was very interesting yeah um now mike out of your journey and, and it's a fascinating journey and, and obviously today you do a lot of cool things um I, i've always been curious about people's magic moments um i mean there's moments that you look back on in life holistically that you go or really important moments for you whether they were learnings or people you came across or, or painful failures um are there any that stick out for you that you could share with the listeners oh look too many to to mention but um one of the biggest failures i've had is probably a good one to share with the audience um you know i fancied myself as a young entrepreneur i'd i'd been at uni i'd run this party hire company and i was moving up in terms of what what was next the next challenge and um through some not-for-profit work that I had been doing, building a community of entrepreneurs, I had stood out to a couple of the guest entrepreneurs that had uh, come as guest speakers. And again, I was still quite young and um, they were looking to build on top of their existing industry experience and some existing businesses they had in the mining and engineering space. Uh, They wanted to build a software company to offer services back to that industry using their existing contacts. Um, and I had that experience of sort of leveraging technology uh, to solve problems, even though I wasn't the technologist. I could, I, I was a digital native, and I could translate uh, between geek speak and and business speak, as uh, as I like to describe it. <laughs> uh, so we we basically teamed up. There was three of us. Uh, we took an equal share each in the business, um, and we created a startup to build software as a service uh, in the mining and engineering space. And it was all very exciting. We opened an office. We hired, um, you know, the first three or four staff. I was the managing director. I was the young guy with the energy and the time to run it uh, for sweat equity. So I, I didn't get paid a cent. I was working on it full time. Uh, but, you know, that was in exchange for having my share in the company. And the other two gentlemen were 20, 30 years my senior. They were experienced. They were successful. And they were funding it. And obviously offering their expertise and insights about the industry they worked in so that we could build software to solve problems. Uh, so it was all uh, an incredible opportunity for me as a, as a young entrepreneur getting a leg up. And um, 
you know, we had dreams of taking over the world and, and this was at the height of the mining boom. We, you know, our initial prototypes and version ones of our software, we had BHP and Rio Tinto and the likes as clients. And, um, you know, I was jetting up into regional Queensland and uh, all over the place as, as we built that. It was an incredible opportunity. But long story short, um, as the mining boom came to an end, so did the cash flow that the other two gentlemen had in their existing businesses, which they were using to fund this one. And uh, rightly or wrongly, they hung on too long and tried very hard to keep the startup alive and uh, unfortunately concealed uh, just how bad that was from me and the rest of the team. And it got to the point where um, payroll had been missed a number of times. There there was a a time when um, my fiance and I, my now wife, but fiance at the time stepped in to pay payroll for everybody else one week, even though we didn't make any money. Um, Mm. Out of my savings, I funded payroll for the three staff at the time. And, uh, and it was just so stressful. We just never knew what was going on from a money perspective. So I called a board meeting, it went for seven hours, you know, we got to three o'clock in the morning, you know, very, very dramatic, but ultimately learned that, um, from my perspective, we were trading insolvent. They were effectively shuffling funds from uh, one entity to the other and then out again, um, trying to make it look like all of the companies were solvent when they really, really weren't. And uh, we reached a conclusion that night that um, we had to wind up the company, let go of the staff and close the office immediately. And I learned a really important lesson um, during that experience. I was a 33% shareholder. I was a director of the company. I had not had visibility of the finances until that moment. And at that moment, it was too late. And so when we effectively failed and collapsed, which happens in entrepreneurship, I had 33% of the liability and the debts Mm. of the company. Even though I was never to fund the company, I was not a financial partner. Um, Of course, I didn't really appreciate going into it that we would potentially fail and any debts or liabilities we had, including, you know, paying out payroll, meeting the superannuation obligations, paying the lease for the office, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of these obligations were outstanding and all of a sudden I was, I was holding a third of it and um, rocked me to my core. As I said, I was engaged at the time. We were just looking to try and buy our first property. It just completely leveled me. And there was an opportunity that I was going to go bankrupt at the age of 22 and um and lose everything it was incredibly incredibly stressful um but you know how does this turn into a magic moment well the way i'd been funding myself during that time was working one day a week as a consultant uh to another digital company called vroom 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 which is a a car rental comparison website and um and they had wanted me to come on to their business full-time because i'd been you know, doing some good stuff one day a week, but I had refused because I was all in on this startup. So I was basically feeding myself with one day a week's worth of consulting money and uh, working the other six days a week on the startup. And when the startup failed, uh, you know, everything around me was on fire. It was just crazy. I thought the world was imploding. But three days later, completely out of the blue, and this is a pure serendipity moment, the uh, major shareholder of Vroom, who lives in the UK, called me out of the blue and said, Mike, and this is the fourth time he approached me. He said, Mike, um, 
I know we've spoken about this before. I know you said you can't give us full time, but I really want you to come on to Vroom uh, and work full time. Love what you're doing, but we need a lot more of it. Um, you've told me that you don't want to come on full time because you don't see yourself as an employee. You see yourself as an entrepreneur and I respect that. So I want you to take some shares in the Vroom company and I want you to come on board full time and run it like it's your own. And there was this long silence. And I went, gee, Pete, I think you've finally twisted my arm. I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> and he had no idea that that my startup had just collapsed. And obviously I told him later, but yeah. you know, it was just this, it was just this uh life-saving serendipity moment. Uh the fourth time he had approached me to come on full time, and it was just perfect. So I avoided bankruptcy. I managed to to square away our employees from this failed startup. We, you know, we got out of it as neatly as possible, preserved my integrity, looked after people, and then went and joined Vroom. And um, Vroom is a company that I still own today. Uh, it's the largest car rental comparison website in the Southern Hemisphere. We compare prices and book cars with the likes of Hertz, Avis, Budget, Thrifty, et cetera. Mm. Um, the, the Vroom startup was 10 years old at the time and, and uh, a great Brisbane success story. And I got involved and ultimately uh, scaled it and professionalized the organization into something much bigger. And over those years, ultimately bought out uh, some other shareholders. And, and today I own uh, the company or the group now because we've grown, but I own the Vroom group with one other partner who happens to be Pete. So we've been on a journey together for the last decade and um, had a wonderful run. Oh, amazing. That is that is a story for the ages, Mike. And I'm sure you going into that Vroom company with that failure probably made you a lot more wide-eyed and not as green, I'd imagine. Like, I'm just, I'm just being hypothetical here. If you had gone into that Vroom environment without having that failure, it probably... I'd say in terms of life experience being a few years behind, right? So that's, I think for the listeners, there's probably a massive learning there that you might have a failure, but you still start with experience. You don't start from scratch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the time, I thought it was the worst thing in the world and, and uh, you know, just poor me. <laughs> look at look at what <laughs> happened, what, what's happened to me. But uh, in hindsight, it was the best thing that could have ever happened because ultimately mm. I learned that I was in business with people that, didn't have the level of integrity that I had for, for first mm. and foremost. I also learned that I need to be across the financials from day one and understand my my director and fiduciary responsibilities. Um, and, and lastly, I mean, when all of that happened and, and happened in the week of one week of my life, all of that transpired, I grew up and matured at such a rate. You know, there mm. was... You're, we were about to lose the deposit we'd just put down on a property. You know, I was recently engaged. I felt like everything was imploding. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I really had to put my big boy pants on and just take responsibility yeah. and fix it. You know, dig myself out of the hole and then build from there. And, and it's exactly what we did. Um, but you're right. I mean, we built and scaled a great company at Vroom because of that prior failure and other prior failures that I had uh, experienced and learned from. Mm-hmm. And and how would you say, you, you mentioned earlier you've had many failures, as we all have. I don't think anyone's had not had failures. Um, how do you deal with painful learnings? Because I think, like you said, looking back, there are lots of learnings, but in the moment, they're probably the hardest thing ever and you go, my world's going to end. Are there any 
tips and tricks you've learned over the years that you go, this is what you do now in terms of mindset or you take some time off or you exercise? Like, how do you deal with it now when you have painful moments? Yeah, look, I think the learning is that there's always going to be painful moments and it's part of what tests your mettle and makes you stronger and ultimately more successful. You can't expect to go through life or build great businesses or anything else for that matter without having some setbacks and challenges along the way. It's how you deal with them and respond to them, I think, that is most important. And, you know, for instance, we've had a very challenging year in the last year uh, in the travel industry with COVID. And, um, and one of the things that we put before anything else was our people. You know, we, we had to reduce our team size. We lost 60% of our global team in uh, the Vroom Group uh, when all of the borders closed, which was, you know, the most incredibly difficult thing I've ever had to do. But we did it in the most appropriate way we could with the tools at our disposal. We were transparent about it. We kept people up to date. We paid everyone what they were due. We often paid them a little bit more to ease the transition. We helped people find new jobs. And of course, from an individual perspective, getting out and exercising, clearing my head, working through challenges, um, leveraging mentors, all of those things are incredibly important. Um, but it's also, I would say, just continuing to take a step forward. You always just have to keep progressing. Tomorrow's mm. another day and it doesn't matter how bad it is. There's still, you know, the, you, you were referring to my sunrise earlier. The sun will rise tomorrow. You Great. get up and you keep going. <laughs> Spot on, spot on. And you mentioned earlier that when you got to your 30s, you sort of felt like you had a better sense and a better grip on life. Um, and, and looking at your LinkedIn, you're doing a million different things today, whether it's the podcast, the YPO, your businesses, I see you're also a speaker. Was that something that you consciously wanted to do when you got to a certain age? Because I truly believe I think life is what you make it. And, and if you own your life, you go, okay, I want to do these things, you can do it if you believe in yourself. Well, how, how have you gone about it? Because I think me included, there'd be a lot of listeners who go, I want to build a life like that or I want to do all these cool things and meet cool people and go on cool courses and continue to improve. But it doesn't just happen. You've got to make it happen. How, how have you done it? Are there any tangible experiences you can share? Because also with a, with a family, I'd imagine it would be very time-consuming. So how do you how do you deal with it all? Yeah, better some days than others, I must admit. Um, but in terms of designing the life that I wanted to live, that was very intentional. And really comes from that entrepreneurial perspective too of um, not being in the corporate machine. That was very much by choice. I learned early on that I um, had a strong distaste for bureaucracy and I made a terrible employee. And so I needed to be a leader of some description. I needed to be in charge of uh, my time and my destiny and, and uh, for better or worse, I needed to do what I needed to do. And so I have cultivated a life um, that I greatly enjoy and I have a number of passions and businesses and things that I'm involved in today. And all of that has been very intentional through um, goal setting or, or mentors or attracting things into my life. Um, one of the biggest values that I have that, that I share with my family is that of freedom. We like mm -hmm. to have freedom of time, freedom of movement, freedom of geography. And so what that really means is we need to be able to um, make an income Sometimes that means making income while we sleep, um, not tied to a nine to five. We need to have the flexibility in our day to um, be in Singapore today, in Australia tomorrow, in Europe next week, et cetera. 
and um, the ability and and experience and capability to build new things and create value in the world and solve problems. That's a real driver for me. And so, of course, when I first set out, I didn't know what businesses I would build or how I would do it, but I've come across things in life that I've discovered are friction points or pain points. And if I've got the requisite skills, then I have a go at trying to solve that. And quite often that turns into a business. So for instance, I ran the Vroom company for the the first three years before spotting an opportunity to um, try and solve the insurance equation that our car rental customers were having. They were being sold extremely expensive, uh, what's called collision damage waiver by the car rental companies. Uh, you, if you rent a car, you get to the counter and they often say, you've got this enormous uh, liability. It might be five or $6,000 if you dent the car or scratch the car. Um, do you want to buy this collision damage waiver for you know $45 a day? And it's incredibly expensive. And our Vroom customers were upset by that, even though it was not our product or anything that, to do with us. It was an experience they were having after making a reservation through our website. And so we set out to try and find a better solution. And and that led to a business opportunity. We founded a company uh, that was originally called Hiccup Insurance. It's now called ProSura. And uh, it's a specialized rental vehicle excess insurance company. Uh, we partnered with Allianz, uh, wrote our own product, invented something in the space and improved upon it. And um, you know, today we're the largest insurer, again, in Australia for that particular type of rental vehicle insurance and expanding to New Zealand and across Asia with a similar product. And it all came about from listening to our customers, understanding their pain points and seeing if we could do something about it, um, which led to the next opportunity. And my final mm. point on this in terms of designing the life that I want is um, you mentioned some not-for-profits that I'm involved in, including YPO, which stands for Young Presidents Organization. And uh, I get involved in things like that to give back and contribute in life because I've actually found that when I am giving without the expectation to receive is actually when I receive the most. It's when yeah. I feel most fulfilled. It's when um, the most random serendipity uh, events occur, when random opportunities or emails or what have you come out of the blue. And I meet the most incredible people who are also selflessly giving their time and skills to grow something when they really don't need to. And those sorts of people and spending time with them is pretty special, I've found. So you know, I'm pretty busy, but I always make sure that in my busy time, I've got some, um, I've got some allocation of ensuring I'm making a contribution because uh, I want to set that example for my kids as well. Mm. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think the podcast is one way of doing that. And I've definitely found that we connect with people with, without having a tangible benefit, right? So, but actually, actually end up getting more indirect benefits out of it, whether it's just relationships get stronger or you grow yourself kind of at a personal level. Um, and I think when you were saying that that story, I think the takeaway for me, for the listeners would be, is that be conscious in life. Because I think it sounds like from your story, you don't always have to find inspiration on TV or in, in the newspaper. You can sometimes find it in your day-to-day -day life and things you do where you can pick up stuff and you can make it better. And it sounds like that's how you got another business that came off the ground. So kudos to you for doing that. Thank you. Um, now, Mike, if you move on to your hustle in particular, so your career or your, or your work as you as you as you do today, um, say if you're stuck in an elevator and someone hasn't met you before, how would you describe what you do on a day to day basis? 
<laughs> Let's hope it's a really tall building with a long elevator ride. <laughs> because, you know, this is part of what I have cultivated in life intentionally, as you say, I've designed a life where I don't fit the norm, where I can do what I want and I don't fit in a box. And that that's intentional. Um, so, you know, if people ask me and I'm just passing, I, I often just say I'm an entrepreneur or, you know, I, I own and run my own businesses in the travel technology space, you know, and um, if we've got a little bit more time, they often ask what that means. And I say, well, we own online travel agencies around the world, specifically in ground transport, things like car rental, motorhomes, car parking, et cetera. We also have ins an online insurance offering and, um, and we build, you know, other data companies and, and other solutions in and around the Vroom group. And, um, you know, as I've had some success in business over the years, it's allowed me and afforded me other opportunities as well, because, you know, one of my passions, uh, which we can talk about if you like, is in running technology companies, I actually found myself in the minority in terms of what you see in the media, at least, in that I don't really align with the Silicon Valley venture capital model of the world. To me, I mean, it's perfectly valid and works for a, a subset, a very small subset of companies and creates enormous value in the world. But if you're not building the next um, Facebook or Stripe or, or, uh, or whatever it happens to be at the time, and you're just building an ordinary great business, which adds great value to customers and, uh, and you make a profit, well, isn't that a good thing too? And unfortunately, yeah. the media celebrates uh, when people out of Silicon Valley are raising enormous sums of money. They celebrate the raise. We've just raised Series A, Series B, Series C. And that's fabulous. But raising money is actually just celebrating giving away part of your company, right? <laughs> They're selling shares yeah. in exchange for venture debt, effectively, in the hopes that one day they will be successful and make money. And as I said, that's valid, but it's valid for maybe one out of 100 companies that are created. I'm very much in the other 99%. I think it's important that businesses are sustainable, enduring and around for the long term. I think it's important that they're profitable and, uh, and can throw off cash or reinvest into the business because I think it makes a better place to work. I think you can reinvest in your employees in a meaningful way. I think you can reinvest in your community because you're naturally putting roots down. You plan to be around for a long time. You're a great uh, steward of the brand and the industry that you're participating in. And, um, and the fact that I've brought that approach to my businesses, I mean, the Vroom business is now celebrating, its, it's just celebrated its 20th birthday this January. And uh, I've been there for half of that time, the last decade. Uh, Prosura has been a seven-year run and, and no intention of changing these trajectories. And so I think having a greater impact is also taking the long-term view, playing the long game, and uh, hopefully playing the long game with long-term people. And so... What that has provided me with the opportunity to do is not just be an entrepreneur, not just be a CEO, but also uh, start to behave as an investor and make some sensible investments in other things that I think are inspiring or enduring and fit my value systems. Yeah, and, and to build on that, Mike, out of all your experiences to date, is there a period that sticks out for you, whether it's six months or a year, that you go was the most energizing and fun? from a work point of view? It's a great question. Um, I don't know if this is, is the right answer to your question, but the thing that pops straight to mind is when I was 28 years old. Uh, when I was yep. 20, I had set 
10 year goals of things I wanted to achieve by 30. And um, at the time they were completely out of reach, somewhat unimaginable. Um, but, you know, I set them as some sort of great goals to try and pursue. And when I was 28, I actually achieved them early. Uh, I, I got, I, I achieved my 10 year goal within eight years. Uh, some of those were financial milestones and, and things like that. Um, mm. My son was also born when I was 28 and uh, I joined YPO when I was 28. And so, you know, you ask, is there a one year? And and it, it might be coincidence, but that year was pretty incredible. Lots of things came together all at the same time, but they had been in the works and very slowly compounding for what was effectively my entire career prior to that and just happened to come together when I was 28. So it was pretty special. Mm, amazing. And I think the takeaway there for listeners is you touched earlier on, I think you were 22 when you had the biggest failure and you thought life was ending and here you are 28, six years later and you've, you're two years ahead of your goals. So well, things can't work exactly. out. You know, and you know, it's, I don't want a, a big note or anything like that, but one of those goals was to, to be a millionaire by 25 and I achieved that and I had other financial milestones uh, by 30 which I achieved um, by 28. And, you know, one of the fun stories I tell is that, you know, I own a company called Vroom Vroom Vroom, which is a bit of a fun and, and catchy automotive <laughs> name. But yep. when I was 28, I went out and bought myself a supercar um, in cash. And that was actually the reward for the goal. So one of the goals I'd set when I was mm. 20 was to hit a certain milestone. And the reward for that milestone was to be in the position where I could comfortably buy a fancy car in cash and not have that affect anything else. So what it really meant was I've taken care of my life, I've taken care of my home, I've taken care of my family, I'm comfortable enough that I can do that. Now, it wasn't to be showy, it wasn't to be fancy, it wasn't to be anything along those lines, it was for me, right? I, I quite like cars, mm. I'm passionate about them, it was a reward. And the funny thing that happened was I got to that point, I realized I'd hit it when I was 28, and all of a sudden I didn't want the reward. You, know, you imagine mm. this this guy and he's... Yeah. He, he's in his 20s, he, he's, you know, had some, at least from the outside perspective, had some success, um, got the opportunity to buy himself a really nice sports car and all of a sudden doesn't want it. And it was because I had worked so hard, so tirelessly, so focused on goals and achieving and building that to me it was just ludicrous to go and waste money mm. and, on something as silly as a car. But... Um, you know, I, I stuck with it for a little while. I really wrestled with the decision, but ultimately did it. I ultimately bought the car and it was to see through my commitment to myself. And this goes back to something I was saying earlier about uh, sticking with university, even though I really struggled through it. It was about discipline. It was about making a commitment to yourself and or to myself and seeing it through. And as silly as that sounds, you know, I drove this brand new fancy car off the lot um, took it home. It was, you know, cost more than my first house type of thing. And, um, but it was something incredibly special for me. And even to this day, I, I mean, I still own that car. It's parked in, it's garaged in Australia. Um, and I don't drive it. I'm in Singapore now. And, and it's effectively a, what they call a, like a collector's car, because in normal times, pre COVID, I'd be flying backwards and forwards to Australia every couple of weeks yeah. or every month. And I'd drive it then, but you know, I've owned the car for you know a handful of years now, and I think it's still only got six or seven thousand kilometers on it. <laughs> and because it's not about 
driving it every day, showing it off to people and saying, look at me, I'm fancy. It was something really special to me. It was about going mm-hmm. from zero to something special, proving to myself that I could do it and, and getting that reward. And it actually did more for my confidence and ambition to go again than anything else, you know, cause I was almost getting a little bit comfortable. I'd, I'd had a little mm-hmm. bit of success and I'd set these 10 year goals and achieved them early. And so then I was, I was sort of 28 to 30 and going, well, what next? Cause I did it. And I really needed to re up and think about, well, what's meaningful to me now? What are the next goals or what's the next stage of life? And for me, that was family. You know, as I said, the same year my son was born um, and I've got two kids now and, and we live in a different part of the world. And all of a sudden it, it was no longer about me. It was about us. And, you know, just to sort of close out that story, that car, um, our intention at the moment is actually to keep it for him one day mm. because it was, you know, purchased the year that he was born. It was really meaningful uh, to me and a, a great story that I can pass down to him about the magic of goals and and perseverance and having ambition in life. So now it's a generational storytelling tool in our <laughs> family um, and was a great prize for, for my journey. Oh, inc- incredible story. I'm a massive advocate for celebrating the wins and, and you've clearly done that. Um, I, I think the one quote there for the people tuning in is the headline there might be Mike buys a sports car, but clearly, as you said, it's the work you put in prior to that. And, and as I touched on earlier, you created this life, but not just created it, actually delivered on it. I mean, that's the that's where the takeaway for listeners is sure you can have a goal. And I think all of us have nice lofty goals, but not many of us achieve it. And I think that's the that's what separates the the yes from the no, right? So if you can achieve it and then get a car, why not? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, part of what I was battling against was trying not to be perceived as the young cocky idiot that got himself a sports car to show off, you know, because there's plenty of people there that that will go out and get a fancy car and they'll lease it or, or get a great big loan when they can't really afford it, but they want to look successful. And I was exactly the opposite. You know, I, I did the largest bank transfer of my life to the dealership and, um, and designed my dream car and drove it home and, you know, no liabilities, no nothing. And it was for me, but I was so adamant to prove uh, to the outside world. I, so I didn't want to be judged for being, an overconfident young person that it spurred me on to be even more successful after that and, and not be perceived as, as the young jock in the, in the sports car. So um, it's interesting how these things come together. And by the time I was 28 and had matured some, I almost didn't want to see through the reward for the 20 year old that had set the goal, but you know, I followed through, I celebrated the win and I'm glad I did. A question that just popped in my mind and I'm, hoping you can shed some light on this, particularly because you live in Asia now, I think is, and one of the themes I've noticed on this podcast is where people have come up from different aspects of life, but also culture is particularly Australia having this almost tall poppy syndrome where your story might be perceived in a wrong way because people go, oh, he is trying to fly his flag. But I think when you go to Asia and particularly the US and, and Europe to an extent, it's sort of appreciated where if you achieve something, people reward you for it and they go, well done. How have you found that? now that you've been in Asia for some time. Um, and obviously, like you said, you've got to do it the right way and, and be empathetic about it and not be too show-offy. But do you find that that's a big difference now when you look back on your days in Brisbane and Australia compared to the Asia of today in terms of cultural norms when it comes to these sort of things? 
honestly, it played a big part. I, I probably wouldn't have shared that story about worrying how I would be perceived or judged if mm. I wasn't Australian and driving that car in Australia. You know, tall, mm. tall poppy syndrome is real. And when you're an entrepreneur and you're going out on your own and, and uh, you know, your high school mates or your university mates are looking at you with wide eyes trying to figure out why you're pursuing this crazy path when you could just go and get a, a good, safe, comfortable job like they are. You know, a lot of people will try and pull you down when you try and do something interesting in life. If you try and pursue your passion, if you try and um, go after something that is your goal or, or something that you're interested in, you, know, you want to build a business or a not-for-profit, there are going to be plenty of people that attempt to pull you down. And it's not about you, of course, it's about them. And it's about them being mad at themselves that they don't share the same ambition or that they weren't confident enough to pursue their own dreams um, or that they're simply not capable. But some people really struggle to process others' success and, um, and tall poppy syndrome is alive and well in, in Australia. On the global stage, you know, I've being in the travel industry, um, part of the reason I live in Singapore is because it's a global hub uh, and very well connected to the rest of the world. So I would travel, um, you know, usually a hundred flights a year. I'd, I'd be all over the world into Europe, the US, um, all across Asia, and uh, obviously at home in Australia as well. And if I was having the same sort of conversation on a podcast uh, that was based in the US, for instance. I wouldn't have even shared that story because it wouldn't have made sense to them. You know, they celebrate success in a completely different way um, and really encourage people to have a go and even celebrate mm. failure, right? Because they appreciate mm. people are having a go. So I do think the culture that you choose to surround yourself with is important. I do think mentors are important. Uh, and I do think that cultivating the right type of circle and life that you want for yourself, as we were talking about earlier, is incredibly important. Um, Offering the Asian perspective, uh, same thing. It, it's not so much about tall poppy. They do celebrate success. But in this part of the world, I'd, I'd almost describe it more as status. In Asia, yeah. status is important, which is why I mentioned that my university degrees were important, right? They judge um, outside credentials. They judge the fact that I have a CEO title. They value that. They judge that I have a couple of degrees from a high-quality university in Australia. Uh, they judge that I live at a certain address here, that I drive a certain car here, that my kids go to a certain school here. You know, and sometimes that's healthy. A lot of the times it's not. But if you're going to make your way in the world as a global citizen, which is exactly what I try and do and one of the things I'm passionate about, then you do have to understand how to interact in different cultures and, and fit in in different circles. So I would say Asia also very much celebrates success rather than... Uh, rather than pulls people down. Mm. This actually, while you were saying that, reminds me of something mum told me and I learned this early on growing up is, and, and we'll, this is a good segue also to your podcast, is I think the, the old rich don't make as much noise as the new rich. And I think that's the best example of that is China to an extent where you see a lot of branded products being used and a lot of merchandise because they're the new rich. Whereas the old rich, the generational wealth, don't need to prove that because they've already got the status there, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, it's a, it's a generalization, but it's accurate. And, um, you know, new money or new wealth often is flashy because um, partly it's because people have been transported from middle class or, or a, a lower class into all of a sudden uh, this class of wealth and they can afford uh, the fancy cars or the fancy handbags or the whatever it might be that they want to show off. 
And, and so they do. And to some extent, you want to say good for them. But obviously, it can go too far and the new money can get very flashy. And unfortunately, it can also lead to their downfall if they don't manage it effectively. Uh, but as I said, I'm speaking in, in vast generalizations here. Um, mm. But you mentioned my podcast and, and what that's all about. And um, it's called The Business of Family. And I started the project because I'm extremely passionate about enduring companies, enduring family wealth, how these multi-generational families or business families steward their financial wealth from generation to generation. They manage succession and, and do it effectively without a breakdown in relationships and, and uh, breaking up the family, but also how they steward their uh, human intellectual and social capital from generation to generation. And this was something I joined YPO um, also when I was 28, as I mentioned earlier, um, Young Presidents Organization. And it's a, a membership organization for CEOs and presidents of pretty substantial businesses. It took me over nine months to get into with a range of interviews and criteria to meet. And, uh, and once I got in, I really respected and understood why it was so difficult because the caliber of people that I get to spend time with there is really quite incredible. And one of the first influences I had in YPO was learning that um, people came from all walks of life and, and different backgrounds to achieve this success. And some of them were family business operators. They were third generation or fourth generation, and they could tell stories about their grandfather, great-grandfather founding something and pivoting and innovating and ultimately leading to you know the pretty substantial wealth and operations that they were operating today. And... The thing that I learned that really caught my um, interest was that the most successful families that were generational had done the work very intentionally to perpetuate their wealth and their, and their family ties. It didn't happen because they were wealthy. It didn't happen by chance. The mm. families that were still together, that were still stewarding assets together, that were having um, um, what's the word, family meetings and annual retreats together. They did so because somebody started that and said, this is important to us. Let's do this with intention. So now I interview multi-generational families of wealth from all around the world on this podcast and from all different cultures, of course. And the same things apply. Every case study is different. But those that do manage to get to the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation uh, always have a framework for family governance in place. They sometimes have a family constitution. They almost always have a shared vision for the family and what they're trying to achieve. They have a written understanding of their family's values. They meet regularly. They go on an annual family holiday or they have a family retreat where they review their vision and values and the performance of their business assets. Um, they uh, invite in-laws and others that are marrying into the family to get to know the family's history and what they stand for and what they're passionate about. And to me, I just love that people are passionate about not only perpetuating their great family values and ties, but also sticking together to make something endure for the long term. That, that just so aligns with my value system. And mm. so that's what the podcast is all about. And I've learned so much from these families, including something as simple as most family businesses don't load up on debt. 
Oh, I must say, I, I love your podcast. Like, I think it's a very unique topic. And, and I'd say it's almost like a taboo topic, which you don't hear about as much in the public space. And I think you've acknowledged that, where you said there was an area, like sort of gap in the market where you could explore that. And you've had some people who maybe were a bit reluctant to come on. They've come on and shared their stories. Um, and I think also just personally, I've seen sort of generational businesses in my own family or within cousins. And, and like you said, it, it can be hard. It looks easy in the outside or people go, oh, I can just, they're so lucky or they were born into that. But like you said, if you don't have the right procedures and structures and I think relationships in place, it doesn't work. Um, I think the question I've got for you, Mike, there um, around what have been some of your tangible learnings from the podcast? I know you've you've done it not for the longest time, but are there one or two tangible tips that stick out? And, and the reason I think I asked that is because I think all of us want to be financially free and, and create that life. I know I definitely do. Is there anything you've learned that you could share today with the listeners, whether it's one or two tangible tips that perhaps we can apply in our lives? Well, look, in terms of tangible tips that I've learned from these families, there are many but one of the things that stands out is that even though it's a podcast about generational wealth 80 percent of all substantial family wealth at any one time is new wealth right most wealth is lost by the third generation and most new wealth is made in each current generation so when you understand those statistics it's pretty interesting to understand that almost everybody fails Almost every family fails to perpetuate their wealth beyond the third generation. And, you know, there's the, the very famous adage, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. So really what I focus on is understanding how the families avoid that same fate. And the, the number one thing that's come out of it is intentionality. They actually plan for it. They put in process some governance and some, some structure, but they talk about it. And, you know, I've had some people on the show that are, founding entrepreneurs, their first generation, but they're already talking about how they want to keep the assets for their kids, how they're going to get them involved and have conversations around the dinner table, uh, sharing their values and what's important to them and getting their input on decisions. And um, it's so easy. let Let me say that again. It is so much easier to choose to be in the minority and learn from those that are successful than to just bumble along in the majority and accept the fate that happens to almost every family. So by studying the minority, you can very easily learn the tips and tricks for how to uh, succeed in creating generational wealth. And of course, my interest in, in learning this is so that I can apply the lessons in my own family. And some of the most interesting things that, that I've learned from the process actually has nothing to do with money or wealth. I've learned that the most successful families who happen to be Um, stewards of generational wealth also tend to be the closest families with the strongest values and they've actually raised healthy motivated and focused kids these aren't spoiled brats these aren't trust fund babies these Mm. are children that have grown up with intention that have been offered opportunities that wealth provides of course but they've been taught the lessons they've been educated about why we do what we do who we are as a family, how we got here. And they have the elders in the family tell the stories of triumph and tell the stories of failure that um, that the descendants can learn from. And that makes those kids more resilient, more confident, knowing that they've 
they've got a piece of that within them as well to face life on their own terms. And, uh, and, and it's just incredible. So I could go on about those things for hours, mm. but th- there's so many great takeaways and they're often really simplistic. It, it's not rocket science, but you just have to do the work. I'm so glad you mentioned that last bit around values and, and behaviors because I think in today's world, particularly with, with Trumpism and, and all these social media pages, I think people growing up think they have to be that kind of um, extraordinary, flashy wealth style people. And, and I, I've seen it in my own life. I think a lot of cousins or family of my own, I think the true rich and not rich in terms of money, but rich in life is because of the strong values and a real grip on who they are. And, and really doing it in a way which is very humble at its core. I think that really sticks out. And that's why people want to associate themselves with those families because they know there's a level of integrity, right? Exactly right. And as I said mm-hmm. at the very beginning, they're not just stewarding financial capital, but also human, intellectual, and social capital. And when you start focusing on who are these great individuals and, and human beings that we're growing and helping to mature into successful adults, and all of a sudden, you know, it's a key measurement in the family as well then you're also measuring your impact through philanthropy, through not-for-profits, through opportunities you're creating in the community. That's why these families are successful. It's not all about money. Mm. Yeah, I would highly recommend all the listeners to go and check it out. I think I asked Mike about how he created his life and, and designed it. I think I know Mike asked that to a lot of his guests. So definitely check it out, the Business Family Podcast. I think it's on all the all the platforms, right? Spotify, Apple, Google, Wherever you get your podcast, I guess. Yeah, it's on all the platforms and uh, businessoffamily.net is the website. And you can also get a newsletter, I believe, where Mike puts some nice cool snippets together. I do. I send out a weekly newsletter and you can find that on the site too if you're interested. Amazing. Now let's finish up with the final sprint, Mike, which is just some rapid fire questions to again understand some of your habits and inspirations. Um, Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? And it doesn't have to be financial, by the way. The best investment I have ever made is convincing my beautiful wife to marry me and, uh, <laughs> and journeying life with her. I strongly believe that choosing the right life partner um, is one of the biggest decisions, if not the biggest decision you can make. And it has such an impact on your happiness, quality of life and success Um as a result, you know, in, in my relationship, in my family, um, in my marriage, we're a team, uh, we build businesses together, we parent together, um, we do everything together. And uh, obviously, each relationship is unique and, and uh, other people do it different ways. But um, I, I would say that by and far, by and large, that is the best investment I've ever made. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? I'm actually trying to learn German at the moment. <laughs> it's the oh, first great. Thing to mind. I, I did it in high school because I had to and hated it at the time, but I'm re-inspired during lockdown to, uh, to pick up some new skills and uh, I went back to language learning. I've been really enjoying it, actually. Nice. Is, is there one quote or person that inspires you? Um, I, would, I would mention Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People again. It's a book that a lot of people have read, but like I said, I read it every year for 10 years in a row and got something new out of it every time. Um, the other quote that I love is, change is hard at first, messy in the middle, and gorgeous at the end. And that quote is attributed to Robin Sharma, who's also a great leadership author, mm-hmm. and um, has really seen me through 
lots of the unknown times in entrepreneurship when you're trying things and you don't know if they're going to work, but you just remember that change is hard at first, messy in the middle, gorgeous at the end. Love it. And last one, is there one thing you try and do every day or every week to get the best out of yourself physically and mentally? Um, for me, it's always about momentum and moving things forward, right? So am I chipping away? Uh, whereas I like to say, and again, another book um, that's called Chop Wood, Carry Water. Chop Wood, Carry Water. And it's all about um, doing the menial work consistently over time and knowing that the results will show up. Um, it's believing in compound interest and um, doing the things that seem small uh, every day, but ultimately stack up to something really significant over time and reminding myself to show up and do that, even though I don't get a pat on the back for it every day, um, has really helped shape my life. Mm. Oh, amazing. Well, that's a great note to end on. Um, I'm really glad we connected, Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I know you're in Singapore and you're very busy, so I appreciate it. And you've got some fantastic experiences that I really hope the listeners can learn from and, and talk soon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. There you have it, Mike Boyd. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.